welcome. It is Wednesday night, Generational Change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And it looks like the California Senate race is about to get very crowded. Oh, and they haven't even pushed the cold carcass out of the way yet. Well, it's going to take a while before that happens. But of course, we all know that politics moves. We don't know that she's not running again. She very likely could run again in 24. She'll be 91. Oh, it's very true. But that's politics. And the fact that we don't have term limits. And remember, in U.S. Congress, it's the House and Senate, the only two chambers in all of politics that do not officially have term limits. Certain states don't have term limits for certain uh, state races. For the most part, states do have them. But in terms of a very specific branch of government, the U.S. legislative branch has no term limits whatsoever. So you can be there forever if you want. Or you can be close to your 80s and officially run for the Senate for the first time. But, you know, it's what it is. That's the system we have. And remember, it has very little to do with the person. It has more to do with the institution, much like the very important topic we're going to be discussing this evening as it relates to the topic of the environment. You know, oftentimes we are led to believe that it's really one side of the the aisle that's really doing the damage and the other side is trying to fight them off. But the truth is they're two sides of the same coin in many ways. Both sides are heavily funded by the fossil fuel industry. And we all know what a disaster Standing Rock was, of not just for President Obama, but also for President Trump. And Lord knows this is going to continue to rear its ugly head as it is with President Biden. So needless to say, the, the real fight that we have on our hands is the corporate special interests that control our government. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, yeah, if, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have a show. Think about that. If there, weren't, if there weren't corporate special interests controlling our government, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, what good? What I would have never run for Congress. I was just talking about the other day. Like, I wish my representative wasn't a corporate whore. It's not like I want that job. Like, I wish she wasn't that and was actually representing regular people. And then I wouldn't feel the need to be involved in this. Or like, I, I'd that, rather that. Or if only that person wasn't an, was an anomaly and not the norm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem. They're all like that. But we are about to get a crash course on exactly what it was like covering this information. Good friend of the show, Jordan Sheraton, a status quo. If you're out there, hope you'll check this out, uh, who was uh, one of the only journalists as well who was actually covering the disaster that was Standing Rock and, you know, the way that we just uh, go about pillaging Mother Earth for the sake of money. And it is really unfortunate that that is the case. But well, and then more so that the more vulnerable communities and indigenous people bear the brunt of the climate crisis. And they, these are the people that actually utilize the least amount of power. Go figure, right? Well, that's how it works. I mean, well, that's the thing that northern and southern hemisphere well, kind of issues. Like people who make the decision as to, you know, what is going to happen to workers in you know, certain places, uh, it's always shareholders that are never actually working with their hands, deciding for people who work with their hands what their, you know, compensation. Well, I mean, it's just the indigenous be. people are just the easiest people to other and abuse and and be able to, you know, take advantage because it's worked so well for so many years. Yeah. If only they were a voting block that one party felt that they could run after, maybe they actually wouldn't treat them as bad. It is pretty pathetic how that works, though, isn't it? Well, 
Yeah. But, you know, it's not like there's any viable options because there's as much of a party that would stand for indigenous people as there is that would stand for working people. And I don't see either of those. Well, that's very true. But of course, that's why we're having this conversation, because these are the conversations that need to be happening, not, you know, silly gossip conversations about God knows what. We need to be talking about the real fundamental issues of our time in terms of our change. And this this is very important, but it bothers me that I wasn't able to see the movie. Well, it's not out yet. I know, so but that's the thing. Normally I get to see the things before we talk about the things. I mean, granted, this is you're sounding based very, on history. You're sounding somewhat diva-ish. Let's not be... No, I hate, I just don't want to feel ill-prepared. Now, granted, this is based on something that actually did happen, and I do recall mm, it at the time. I so it too. wasn't like, right. But still, I mean, I, I just prefer to, you know... He is be informed. He is the co-director with his wife Rebecca. Uh, but we are very pleased to welcome Josh Tickle, who is the director of On Sacred Ground. Welcome to Generational Change. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to see you both. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. I Thanks. appreciate it. But I'm a little sad I haven't seen the movie. And I went to go look. Normally he says, okay, we're gonna have people on, and I'm all excited, and I go look to see it or read it or whatever it is, and to no avail. It's not there yet. It's a secret. Okay, but I just want you to know that I would have, if it were, watched it to be able to discuss more thoroughly. I'm just saying, because, and I take notes too. Well, I believe you do. And, you know, once you see the movie, you're going to want to talk more about it. So we can, you know, okay. we can have another, we can have yeah, another. Yeah, you're going to have to come back. Well, we've been exchanging emails um, with, with Molly, as you know, and uh, she mentioned that there is going to be an opportunity uh, to have um, Mr. Arquette and Mr. Uh, Montpether on the on the show. So we obviously would very much look forward to that conversation. Uh, so what made you obviously decide to first make the documentary and what was well, you know, probably be a better place, Josh. What was your personal experience like with Standing Rock going right. back to 2015, 2016? Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like for you? Well, I, Rebecca and I, you know, we do make environmental films. So we had been talking to a number of tribal leaders and tribal elders as far back as uh, 2013. And they said, listen, there's this prophecy. It's called the prophecy of the black snake. And they said, when the black snake crosses the land, a time of great trouble will begin. And as ominous as that sounded back in 2013, uh, it really hit home when the DAPL pipeline began to cross the land in 20, you know, 16, 2015, even it was being built even before then. And they said, listen, this, in our opinion, is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is the black snake. And uh, Rebecca and I, you know, she was, my wife, Rebecca, who I co-direct and co-produce these films with, was nine months pregnant. And we had a tremendous community of people that were involved in Standing Rock. She said, look, one of us has to go. It's not, you know, unfortunately me, this time it's you. Yeah. So I went to Standing Rock. We had a request to our film studio from the filmmakers there, many of them indigenous, who were losing footage due to the cold weather, due to the harsh conditions. These, this was documentation of crimes that were being committed against the indigenous people. So we were able to get a number of hard drive companies to donate hard drives. I went to Standing Rock with those hard drives, with cameras, um, and volunteered as a camera person for these uh, mostly indigenous crews. And it was a life-changing experience. I mean, this wasn't a protest so much as people see it categorized in the media, as it was a city 
it was every one of the 575 federally registered tribes. You know, there's 575 tribes that the federal government registered uh, recognizes. And then there are many tribes that the federal government doesn't recognize. They're just like, you're not a tribe. Um, they were all there. It was a school. It was a functional city. Uh, they had their own security. They had their own meetings. They had their own decision-making process, you know, sort of a, you know, judicial system, if you will. Um, and this, you know, so in so much as that was the, the what kind of encased the human element, it was also a ongoing prayer site. So this was this was sacred ground. We were on sacred ground, not our ground. Uh, and this was a, the entire community was organized around prayer. This was a sacred site, a sacred burial site uh, that the construction happened to be happening on. And so that personal experience being welcomed into a community of people that I had interacted with, but I honestly didn't know on a cultural level, on a deep cultural level, I didn't know that much about. And to be welcomed in and to be shown a world that uh, was hard to describe was a life-changing experience. And I don't think just for me, I think it was a life-changing experience for every water protector, whether they were of European descent or of indigenous descent. So when Rebecca and I finally got an opportunity to make our first scripted narrative film, you know, one thinks, well, you should make your first scripted film on something that's easy and accomplishable, and, and you can do it with a couple of actors in a room. Uh, we said, no, let's make it in the most difficult way, in the dead of winter, with the lowest budget, a small crew <laughs> under <laughs> on a subject that's just immense and difficult to, uh, difficult to put into a film. Uh, but somehow it turned out, and that's what On Sacred Ground is. It is an actual film uh, with actors, that for the most part portrays real events that actually occurred at Standing Rock. No, they're not. But now are those characters specifically real people or is it like a compilation of different people that these characters represent? Uh, some of the characters in the film are based on actual individuals. Right. Uh, and, and the main two characters uh, who are, William Maypother plays this character, Daniel, Dan, uh, who's a war vet with PTSD, he is an amalgam of several real people who were at Standing Rock. And Mika, who is uh, the indigenous kind of counterpart who kind of shows him into this world, she is an amalgam of, of two or three people as well. Everyone else represents an actual person. Right, That's I think that's great, I love that. So it's like, you know, it's making something that's like, it's a docudrama. That's what I guess. Is that what you call it? Like it's not, I guess that's the term is docudrama. Uh, I, um, yeah. I mean, I mean different, yeah. people, different people will call it different things. It has, there are moments when you're watching on sacred ground, when you're watching the film where it literally feels like a documentary because there's it, we're intermixing footage that was shot on the ground at standing rock. We're intermixing real events and you're like, wait, this is real. No, that's, I know that guy. That's David Arquette. Right. Uh, he's an actor. Um, so it, it, it blurs the lines between between reality and drama. 
How has this been, or do you know, like, how has this been received by the indigenous people that, that were sharing their space? Because that's something that I have learned about the whole idea of space and the space that you're taking up and whose space that is. But so ha- have you, you know, I mean, I'm assuming that you worked with people that were um, on, on that side of things and were able to see it from that perspective. Yes. So a lot of people know the main actors in the film, the, you know, David Arquette, uh, Mariel Hemingway, uh, you know, Amy Smart, Francis Fisher, the perhaps not quite as well-known names were even more pivotal in making the movie. And these were Irene Bedard, uh, Carrie Knupe, who, who plays Mika, David Midthunder, and Che Jim. These were an incredible group of uh, Marshall Dancing Elk, Elk, Marshall Dancing Elk Lucas. These are an incredible group of indigenous uh, people who are also actors, who on every stage of the way, every day, were helping guide the script. They we would literally go out and be ready to shoot a scene. And, <laughs> nope, can't shoot it like that. Uh, Josh and Rebecca, you have to come over here, and we have to have a conversation. And and they would literally help us rewrite portions of the script on the set, on the day. Uh, And even before that, we had guidance from a group of tribal elders and leaders. And and what most people don't realize is, you know, Standing Rock was created by youth. It was a group of young activists that began that sacred fire, sacred prayer site uh, in opposition to the pipeline, but for a greater possibility And I think the most important thing for the Lakota and other tribal members who were part of the film was, did the film accurately depict the events? Did we we take time to deal with the big issues that these tribal nations are still dealing with? Specifically, did we deal with theft of treaty lands? There's a scene in the film where Dan, the main character, he's a war vet journalist, he goes into the hotel room of Danny Sheehan, who is a real person in real life, who is an attorney for the Lakota People's Law Project. And in this scene, Dan sees a map, and the map has these outlines on it, and the outlines are of tribal treaty lands. And he's going, wait, These treaty lands take up most of North and South Dakota. What does this mean? And then Danny Sheehan explains, this is land that we granted to the Sioux Nation as part of the Fort Laramie treaties. These treaties are upheld by the U.S. Constitution. And of course, here's our character, Dan, just going, wait, what? Our Constitution says that most of North and South Dakota belong to the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota people? This is, how could, what? So it's it's big moments in the film like that, where the characters are grappling with these big issues, murdered and missing indigenous women, men, and children. Huge issue. You know, people don't realize these yeah. oil encampments come and, and, and indigenous people begin to disappear and they turn up dead. I was and gonna they, ask you about that. I was gonna ask you about that. The missing women issue is huge. It's I know it's all people, but it does seem to predominantly be a female problem. Yeah. And there's a there's a number of scenes in the film where that's kind of evolving. And Dan is, you know, Dan, it's a fish out of water story. Dan is a meta character. 
he is meant to sort of embody, you know, people of European descent, us, yeah. uh, you know, the outsiders, Americans, yeah, who don't know, uh, or at least who didn't know before Standing Rock. And so he's, he's having to grapple with these huge, you know, grenades of information that are hitting him, whether it's by a personal conversation or some interaction or something he uncovers in his investigation. Uh, and it's Dan is an allegory, you know, he's, Critics who say, well, the, the film's too much on this guy. It's like, yeah, we're too much on the white guy. That's true. It's like, yeah. this is this is the issue. Uh, you, you know, they kind of miss the point. And the point is, <laughs> like, he's our window into this world. Um, so I think for the, the, the film is being shown at Standing Rock. It's being shown um, in many of the reservations there. It's being shown in a thousand schools or already have registered. Any, any school can register to show the film at this point for free. Um, any tribal nation can show the film for free. Uh, it's, it's, it's being given. And uh, the response has been overwhelming, touching, emotional, heartbreaking to see that the, the, these issues are continued and that they're not just at Standing Rock. This is, you know, the theft of indigenous lands. Yeah. The, the thing that we walked away from our uh, interaction with these incredible, brave indigenous people who have continued to show up to screenings and continue to help tell the story is that there is no environmental justice issue that is also not an indigenous rights issue. It, they're just intrinsically connected, not just here in yeah. the U.S., but all over the world. And so we're, we're even learning more now from the people that are taking on the film and using it. So it's it's been an honor. Uh, it was an honor to be invited. It's an, it was an honor to be on their land. It's an honor to be in community um, with all of the beautiful people who have contributed to this project and continue to work uh, to use it as a message piece. Uh, and it's, it's an honor to continue to learn from it. I think it's amazing. We're speaking with Josh Tickle, the director of On Sacred Ground. Uh, the Culprit that never got enough attention, as far as I'm concerned, was Kelsey Warren. He, of course, uh, had a huge hand in what was going on. Um, I think one of the big mistakes that is made when it comes to these issues is not recognizing just how powerful um, the oil conglomerate is in the United States and as it is globally. And they do not care about whether or not communities are being destroyed. Because for them, it is all about the bottom line and their attitude is, well, if we have to buy off a handful of politicians in order to make things right for us, then that's what we'll do. Um, is the message more or less uh, it centered in some ways on corporate greed and just how effective that is in, in regards to why we have this decimation of our environment the way that it's been done? Well, if you know uh, anything about my background and Rebecca's background, Big Picture Ranch, you know, we make activist grassroots films about environmental issues. It's what we do. Uh, we've made films on oil spills. We made a film on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill called The Big Fix, uh, which was, you know, considered to be a little bit radical. I mean, it never got shown in the U.S. <laughs> it, it premiered at it was on Netflix Canada, but Netflix, the, you know, U.S. wouldn't, wouldn't put it on. Of course. So, uh, you know, it's just the way these things roll sometimes. But I think, you know, for us in crafting the film, we wanted to show both sides. 
And there's a character played by David Arquette. His name's Elliot. And he's also a war vet, but we don't exactly know his background. He has some conversations with Dan where he reveals uh, that he was also in the Middle East, but he's done some other operations. And you can sort of see Elliot's very intelligent. He's very sophisticated. He outlines the reasons why we need this pipeline. He says, listen, this is about you know, uh, domestic security. This is about balance of trade. This is about you know, in, in sort of empowering the, uh, the American consumer. And all of his arguments are very good. Um, at the end of the day, Dan, who was our main character, splits from Elliot and they have a confrontation. I don't want to give too many things away about the film, but, <laughs> but the part of what we were trying to do with the film was dance in this gray area because we spent time with both sides and we saw both sides. And, you know, it's hard to believe that there would be good people on the side of the oil companies. And, you know, but a lot of the people working for them are laborers, you know, who are punching a time clock. Um, at the end of the day, I think the audience has to make that choice. And um, we tried to leave it to the audience to go, okay, this is right and this is wrong. I think the film is ultimately, um, the big question it asks is, there is what we perceive as socially acceptable and right. We need oil, we need to drive our cars, we need to consume, America runs on oil. You know, there's that perception. And then there's what's morally right. And the moral road includes the promises that we've made as a nation, which include the treaties, our constitution. The moral road includes honoring sacred sites, honoring indigenous people. The moral, uh, you know, right way to be a country includes honoring the rights of humans. And, and if they begin to be sold or used or shown up as dead and murdered, then these are issues that should be national issues. And I think the film pits these two worlds against one another and says, look, many of you may have heard of Standing Rock. You may have seen something on Facebook if, you know, years back. Like, this is still an issue. Um, you decide, audience. You watch the movie and you decide. Yeah. I think it's interesting because let's say we could get rid of the oil and gas industry and everything was, you know, whatever other method we decide to focus on, it would still be the indigenous communities that had to deal with the brunt of whatever the negative consequences would be. So if there were negative consequences from, let's say, solar fields, wind, whatever it is, the negative consequences are still going to be placed on the most vulnerable people because that core concept that we have in this country about like othering people and punching people while they're down, it's like that, it's, it seems ingrained. It's like ingrained. And yeah, we can say oil and gas is infinitely worse because it is, but it just seems like the general principle of abusing indigenous people and screwing people over and taking resources and might makes right that it's just not working for us. It's just not really working for us. And yet we keep doing it over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, part of the journey of On Sacred Ground, of this film, which is 
you know, it's going to be available. It's in theaters. It'll be on Apple, iTunes, uh, Amazon, all those places. And if you're a school, you can register to show the film for free. If you're an indigenous, uh, you know, community center, you can register to show it for free. Part of the journey of this film is a journey of um, healing. You know, it's a spiritual film. It's very hard for us as people of European descent to deal with what has occurred when we really outline it. And if we're going to make different decisions in the future, it is important for us to recognize the mistakes of the past and to make amends. Uh, I think that, you know, we've been a big proponent. Our studio has been huge proponents of solar and wind and electric cars. Uh, and it's to my absolute heartbreaking dismay to see these lithium strip mines being put on tribal lands. That. It's like, did we not learn anything from gas and oil 1.0? Are we going to now do that again? And it speaks to something that our indigenous brothers and sisters talk a lot about, which is this white or European propensity to continue to fix technological problems with more technological problems. It's like putting Band-Aids on top of Band-Aids. And it's, it's part of the Western mind. You know, we want to conquer, we want to consume, we want to extract, we want to build. And part of the indigenous teaching is, hey, brother, just wait a minute. Like, what are the resources that are already there? What, what's the land telling you? What's the earth telling you it needs? And, and part of the film is, is dealing with the reality. Look, these pipelines exist. Um, but who is benefiting from these pipelines? You know, are we, you know, you can say, look, America runs on oil. We have to have pipelines. Okay. Does, does that mean that the people over whose land the pipeline travels, they get nothing? Their environment gets destroyed? Uh, is that necessary? Do we necessarily have to be extractive culturally and extractive socially, as well as extractive environmentally? Can we not be reasonable at any level? And so I think the film offers a chance for our hearts to grieve, to feel, to heal, and hopefully the film offers a space, a new space for dialogue to say, do we have to make the same choices starting this year, starting in 2023? Can we, as a society, begin to say, okay, let's look at this. Maybe we don't need to put that next lithium mine, that next pipeline, that next uranium, you know, maybe there's a different way. We're speaking with Josh Tickle, director of On Sacred Ground. And again, uh, a lot of there are solutions that are out there. Uh, we really have not come to terms with the fact that, you know, we just had on uh, Railroad Workers United and they talked about the fact that maybe the most underlying factor regarding the railroad oligarchs that unfortunately President Biden sided with mm. is the fact that they are as much as any conglomerate in this country standing in the way of something that is deeply needed in this country and would be deeply beneficial to the environment. And that, of course, is high-speed rail. And so standing in the way of that type of progression leads you to circumstances where 
again, the, the layers of what the fossil fuel industry has done to this country, not the least of which is the fact that automobiles are not running on average 50, 60 miles to the gallon, still average today is in the mid 20s, I believe. Hmm. And that's deliberate. It's not like these, the, the ability to manufacture these type of transportation vehicles are not able to be done in a very environmentally efficient way. But because of the control that they have and the fact that, you know, it's funny, it's like we would joke about Senator Sinema in Arizona and how easily it seemed that she was bought off for her votes and such. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like in the Great Plains region where the money isn't as plentiful and how much easier it probably is even though it is predominantly GOP, it is certainly a circumstance where it doesn't take a lot to convince these individuals to just look the other way. Your campaign coffers are going to be fine. By the way, we're going to be drilling the hell out of these lands and we are going to be poisoning people, displacing people and all in the name of profit. Oh, and by the way, you're not getting any of that profit. Well, it's this, all ours. this is something else that's interesting is my understanding is that the oil that goes through like the Canadian pipelines that come down they're not for us. Isn't that oil that we send somewhere else, right? Like, I mean, I look, I'm not going to ever pretend to understand like the whole world function in economics, but all I know is we're fighting with people overseas for their oil and we're shipping our oil to other people overseas. And none of it makes any sense to me, except for that the people at the top are getting really rich. Like that's all, all roads lead to that. And I understand that, but they're really, um, it's really very opportunistic, to say the least, that they're building these these pipelines and we're not even the beneficiaries of that oil. Well, and that's a point that comes to a head in the film uh, as as Elliot and Dan face off. You know, there is a there is a line where where Dan says, you know, he's asking Elliot to level with him. He says, where's the oil going, Elliot? Yeah. It's all going overseas, isn't it? And Elliot says, competing with OPEC is national security. And that's the counter argument. You know, that's what you'll hear. That's the, that's the counter spin. Right. Uh, and from a geopolitical standpoint, that's perhaps true. But the bigger question is, how do we get to the point where that's true? How do we get to the yeah. point where an extractive economy where we're literally extracting uh, this substance from under people who have lived here for millennia yeah. so that we can send it to China so that we can be economically competitive. Wait, that's the argument? That's the justification? So, I, you know, look, I think uh, what Standing Rock was and what we wanted to just touch on in this film. This is not the definitive film. This should not be the only film. I hope that a bigger studio takes this on and makes it, you know, 20 times bigger and 20 times greater than, than we have, you know? Um, and thank goodness for Shout Studios for being bold and for picking this up. I'm glad we have some bold distributors in cinema in the U.S. Um, but, you know, what we wanted to touch on, because what the what the event touched on, was the insanity of a consumerist culture that continues to extract when all signs point to stop, reverse, rethink, do it a whole different way. And this was a moment, this is, a, this is an underrepresented historical moment 
where tribes from around the world came together in peace and harmony to pray together and to honor each other and to say, yes, we are, we offer after everything that's happened, after, you know, hundreds of years of dislocation and exploitation, we offer you, our European, you know, brothers and sisters, we offer you to come in and see our ways and learn and teach and share. And I just think, golly, I'm not sure if, uh, if everybody realizes what a big deal that is for folks yeah. that have had a really hard time to be yeah. so giving and so open. Yeah, and I was thinking that I wouldn't be. Yeah. I, I thought that many times. And we actually had a um, the Lakota Sioux, a group came down here to FIU and did this nonviolent resistance training, um, like this thing a few years ago. And it was really amazing. And I remember thinking, like, how nice of them to even engage with us. Because I got to tell, I don't think I would. Yeah. Yeah. If the tables were trying, and that's a great question yeah. for everybody to ask themselves. It's something we wanted to kind of have present in the film as the audience watched. Look, this is a great film. You can watch it. You don't have to care about Standing Rock. You don't have to be a lefty. You know, watch it as a drama, right? Yeah. But, and 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 just go on the emotional journey. And and I guarantee you, something will shift in your heart. You will, you, you don't have to become a, you know, you don't have to become a, a California, you know, liberal. Uh, you just watch the film and, and just on. be like, wow, that's, that's, that's a powerful, you know, thing. Um, but if you are open to it, one thing that I think audiences are feeling so far in the film festivals and the screenings that we've had is they do realize, um, wow, these people have been through a lot and they're still willing to come to the table. Uh, and I just, it's hard to overstate the power and the beauty of that. Uh, because as, as harsh as this issue was, as brutal as that pipeline was, as insensitive as the way it was done, and the whole thing really brings, brings into bigger question, uh, you know, issues of constitutional morality, issues of you know, who are we as a nation really brings these things to light. Um, I think the bigger thing is like, are we willing to come to the table as well? You know, would you be willing to go to the table if the tables were turned? And if your people had been, had gone through what so many of these indigenous tribes have gone through for three, four, 500 years, these are, these are tribes that had a documentation of history stretching back for some of them thousands of years. And yes, it was not written in the Western sense of how we document history, but right. their oral traditions are extremely accurate from generation to generation. They had an incredible knowledge of the ecosystem of what we call the United States today. They built the soils that we eat from. They managed buffalo. They managed bison. They did managed burns. And so we kind of think of, you know, the innocent savage. That's the Western mindset. It's like, oh, these were primitive people. They were actually very advanced people. Uh, yeah, and they could survive off the land in a way that, 
you know, European America could never survive. Yeah, we belittle all those people. We same as we did with Africans, same as we oh. do with the Arabic nations. Like they were all savages until the white people came and saved them from themselves. Right. So, you know, I think to understand that there is a rich, not just cultural heritage, which is kind of what we like to say, there's rich knowledge. Like knowledge that could save us right. as we hurl toward uh, a planet of 10 billion people. And as we hurl toward a carbon index of, you know, over 450 ppm, these are serious times that we live in. These are, if you stand back and you look at what the IPCC, the International Panel on, on Climate Change, this is the largest scientific endeavor that human beings have ever done. It's 2 billion data points. And what does it say? It says you're screwed unless you decarbonize your society quickly. Well, how are we gonna figure out how to do that? Maybe we should talk to the people who were here before who had that going on. Uh, you know, when Lewis and Clark came across the, the great mountain ranges of the United States, in their journals, they talk about the incredible strength and stature of the indigenous people they met. They met people who were taller, broader, better fed, far stronger than they were. And this speaks to the fact that there was a plethora of nutritional availability. They were managing their nutrition. They, they, were, they, they were agriculturalists. They understood how to manage the land. All of that knowledge is what we're working on in our other films called Regenerative Agriculture. That, that's... That's how we're gonna. That's how we're gonna get through the the global crisis. And guess who has the knowledge? Yeah. The people who were building pipelines over their sacred burial grounds. It's so you know. I think on sacred ground, it's look. It's not gonna be a film for everybody. That's fine. But if you are brave and you want a powerful spiritual experience and you care about the environment, watch the film. It's an amazing film. It will give you a moment of realization that um, we are we are guests here. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And I think that um, the, the problem is that I see like, oh, I think we should all be learning from the indigenous cultures. But the thing that they have that we don't have is they care about the collective. Mm -hmm. um, indigenous cultures very much recognize the strength of the collective. We do not do that. And so when they look at ways of survival and doing regenerative agriculture and all the stuff that we support, that those things also go hand in hand with this understanding of the greater needs of a collective, because there are compromises and there are sacrifices. Not everybody gets to eat meat every meal every day. Right. Like <clears throat> there have to be certain concessions. And in a group of people that spiritually care about the nature of collective they all tend to get that. We see this in other countries. We oh, see that in Asia. You communists, I, I can eat meat what every I'm day if I want. What I'm saying is it goes hand in hand and, and indigenous cultures tend to understand the nature and the concept of sacrifice in favor of the collective. And we are so lost on that general principle that that to me affects so many of our issues like in this country, is that just lack of a real communal. And yes, and that's when I get called communist Karen and whatever other crap people want to call me. But like that care of the collective is the only thing 
that will have us survive as a species if it's not too late already. So, so like, I don't see any other way out of this other than collectively. And it is only the indigenous people that seem to get that the most. And how beautiful that they are still here and they're still willing to help. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, I, you know, there were millions of people that watched the events of Standing Rock on Facebook. The mainstream media did a terrible job of covering the event. Um, and, and there are many reasons for that, but the reality is this touched people's hearts. They really, I mean, every yoga studio, I was very much part of the yoga community at the time, had a collections box and donations. I mean, the, the amount of outpouring of just the feeling of like enough is enough. You know, when are we going to start respecting people's boundaries? And I think it's important to not let that historical moment go away. That was one of the reasons why Rebecca and I like, okay, we're out, you know, we're, we're, we're taking on something that is so beyond us on so many levels. We we're pretty much likely to fail in making this film. Uh, We're going to go out with a blaze of glory here. We're just like, but it's such an important story and no one's telling it. And even if we, even if we do a terrible job, at least the story will continue to stay alive. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I mean, our friend Jordan was one of the few people that was actually there. He was was there. Yeah. yeah. And so we we've obviously gotten information about this and we cover it via other people that were there. But no, you didn't see that. This is not this is not uh, copacetic with the mainstream media narrative. This doesn't work with that. OK, that doesn't it's not a good look for them to come up because we're bullies and it, it looks like we're bullies. And that's not the narrative that we're supposed to know. And it's always easier for people that are living in cities like Chicago, for example, or New York or LA or San Francisco or even Denver. One of our like neoliberal elite bubbles. You know, they protect themselves. And I, forgive me for not remembering the executive's name, but it was in Colorado and he is a billionaire off of uh, fracking wells. And they (laughs) attempted to put a fracking well basically within the boundaries of his property. And he said, oh, you're not doing that. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah, it's it's a dark irony. It's, you know, look, I... I think uh, if you guys have space on your show, hopefully uh, you can have some of the indigenous uh, folks on at some oh, stage. Yeah. That, that would oh, be yeah. These people are some of the most amazing, brave human beings I've ever met. Uh, and they'll, they'll contribute uh, far more than I ever will. But, uh, it, you know, I think, you know, we have an opportunity as a species to begin to make different choices. We cannot continue to make the same choices and expect different results. And I think what you said about the collective is so important. You know, at the end of the day, uh, we all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. You know, water is life. We all touch the same soil. And if we can't take care of those things. You can't eat money. It's not going to matter at the end of the day. You know, (laughs) carbon in the atmosphere that we've extracted from tribal lands, that affects everybody. It affects 
literally every single person, maybe every single living creature on the planet. And that is the definition of collective. So I do feel that we as a species are edging up to this moment of like real decisive uh, time where we're going to have to decide, okay, is it just about my slice of the pie or can we, can we make the pie bigger? Can we, can we involve more people and can we listen uh, to the folks that may have some solutions that lasted for about 10,000 years since the ice sheets receded, you know, we came relatively recently when you think about it, you know, with the germs, guns, and the steel, that stuff was pretty, is pretty new in the history of humanity. Okay. So I just realized, so you did kiss the ground. Correct. Okay. So that was one of the very first uh, podcasts that we did. And I, I ended up, I loved the movie. And then I ended up contacting Kirsten Olson, um, based on, on her book. And we had her come on. She was one of our earliest podcast people and the whole concept of regenerative agriculture. So I was just going to say, you're doing another one of those, or is it something totally different? Well, uh, we haven't officially uh, announced it, but there is a sequel to kiss the ground and it's coming out this year. Excellent. Oh, I love that. I, I didn't, I can't believe I didn't realize that it was the same. Yeah. That was a great, that was one of my first documentaries when we started this show. Yeah. And it's got, uh, you know, I'll just, I don't want to give too much about the sequel away, but I will say that I will say that on sacred ground, uh, influenced the kiss the ground sequel tremendously. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think a whole concept of regenerative agriculture is amazing. And, um, that's something we all need to be sort of like working toward. It's a damn shame that we, uh, put uh, principle over popularity because unfortunately there's a lot of shows in what I consider to be the populist left spaces that are not focused on this. I'm sure they have not been reaching out to you because other than Jordan Cheriton, there really isn't that many that really are focused on the, the real core factors of our day that can really make a difference in whether we're not only going to survive but thrive. Uh, the environment goes without saying. It's always been my top issue of concern in politics, so, along with healthcare. And so, you know, if we're going to fight on these front lines, you know, we have to have knowledge at our disposal the best way possible. And the work that you're doing is absolutely good and exceptional. And we certainly hope to promote you further. Hopefully, as uh, Molly had indicated, uh, the two main stars of the uh, docu drama, as Jen would well, say. Well, I think that's uh, we'll what it's called. Okay. Well, watch the film and you decide. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll we'll have you back. And I definitely will have you back to talk about, you know, the Kiss the Ground sequel thing that's going right. on because that movie was really great. I was very, very pleased. Not to mention, you know, I'm a real Woody Harrelson person. So yeah, he's a wonderful, he's a wonderful human being. Woody, Woody, oh, yeah. so, Woody would be a trip to talk to because he's like, you. I know, he's, I know. he's, 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 he's a, a fellow he's cannabis. A weed, he's a weed vegan. So yes. there you go. Yeah. You I know. You can't beat that. He's one of my peeps. But he, and he has his own compound in Hawaii. So, uh, you know, he's living the life. <laughs> uh, Josh, um, how can people find you? How can yeah. they find your work? Obviously, how can they see on sacred ground? Obviously it's on limited release, but it's coming out so, on the 13th. It's coming out on Friday on limited release. Yep. So, so how, how can people view it if they'd like to? Yeah, great. Well, it's in theaters in about 25 cities. Uh, the great news is if you're not in one of those cities, if you're in one of those cities, come enjoy the film, you know, be part of the community experience. We have a lot of indigenous people coming out to do the Q&As in those theaters. Uh, if you're not in one of those cities, you can go to onsacredgroundmovie.com, onsacredground, you know, 
Facebook and Instagram. You watch it on Apple. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. Or if you're a teacher, you're in the school system, you are part of an indigenous tribal community, you can go on the website on sacredgroundmovie.com and request the movie for free. We'll get it to you. Uh, there are also website resources on that website. If you want to contribute directly to the organizations that are working at Standing Rock and in that area, we have listed some great organizations that you can just go directly contribute to right there in the resources tab of the website. Thank you. Thank I you appreciate it you. so much. And I look forward to talking to you again. Guys, go to onsecretgroundmovie.com. Josh, all the best to you, Rebecca, you. and everyone involved. Keep fighting the great fight, and we will definitely talk again soon. And thanks, appreciate Molly. Appreciate you and your viewers. Thank you all. You're very welcome. Have a good night. That was cool to find out that that was the same. Because that was yes. like, I was so obsessed with that movie. And it then I got Mo into together. the movie. And then I got Mo into the movie. And then that is basically what triggered those two community gardens that we mm. did. Was because of that. So we all all the Josh and Rebecca. Well, everything <laughs> is interconnected. That is true. I mean, everything is interconnected. I get that. Well, that's the whole thing about building the network. Is I would just like about. us to stop abusing the indigenous people. Yeah, but that would require us sacrificing some profits, and we can't do that. I just, that is so... just not, can't do that. That's not allowed. Because money's money. Don't you understand? No, It's I very don't. important. I prefer most things indigenous. I really do. You know, it's kind of like the conversation I had with ABC3 the other night, and, you know, talking about, it's like, oh, well, we have to tear down capitalism and this and that, and I'm thinking... What you have to remember is there is going to be some form of a free market that's always going to exist. So the question is whether you want it to be completely monopolized by tyrannical, uh, tyrannical, tyrannical, tyrannical companies like BlackRock. It's not Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes, it is. Tyrannosaurus Rex. No. If you like our content, go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. Shout out to uh, Nevin. Nevin, Nevin Gusak, who is, is now a new patron, which, yes, $10 a month All patron. Right. And what makes Loving me it. feel bad, ironically, is the same day that I found out about that, Nevin, your envelope that I sent you with stamps that my husband said would be sufficient came back to me for insufficient postage, which is very frustrating because it really should have been just one stamp. Just and drive to his two. house and drop it off as far as I'm Well, concerned. I stuck them both in the mail at the same time as ah. I sent in double K. Who, hers might get sent back double K. If it does, I'm going to resend them. So anyway, I'm sorry about Fair that. Thing, and I'm blaming Jason because he, he weighed them and told me it would be sufficient. And I even stuck on an extra stamp anyway. So I think it has to do with the shape, not the weight. TM, great that's to see my, you. That's my Colinello, thought. Jason, I hope you guys are getting along. I can see that there's been quite the feisty conversation, but remember- for Yeah, everybody be nice. We don't want to get rid of our of our um, more conservative people. We like everybody to be having discourse. $5 a month. It, well, you see, here's the thing. Conservatives don't give a no, shit. No, for $5 a month, you can be a patron and support us. For $10 a month- You can get the mansion parliamentary bumper sticker. Which remember, will be coming to they're you, They're going Nevin. to be running for president, you know. The Lulu sticker. Here's hoping. Well, he got one. You know, I stuck those in with the pencils. But if you're feeling very, very generous and really want to support us. Guys, $25, $25 a, month. a month. The tri-blend, soft as butter, baseball jersey, generational <laughs> change t-shirt. You know you want one. And they're really cute, guys. They are. Perhaps one of you gentlemen out there have a lady friend in your life that have you want to get her a gift. Yeah. Why do you say it has to be for a lady friend? Why can't Valentine's it be? Day is right around the corner. Why can't it be for them? And why are you using the term lady friend? If you have a Girlfriend, lady in your life, wife, why don't you spouse, just say significant spousa, other? Significant other. You know, you politically correct people. <laughs> You're genderizing You're people. You're genderizing people, yeah. So make sure that you do that because Lord knows uh, we, we all want to be politically correct around here. 
so for anyone who is uh, contributing, you know what it is. To me, it's not about being politically correct. It's about being kind. Yes, and being kind is a being kind and respectful and loving and doing things. Oh, go hug a tree. Because if calling somebody something makes them feel badly, then I don't want to make people feel badly. So I do that not because it's politically correct, but because I want to not be mean to people. I don't want to. That's just I just don't want to be mean to people. And if somebody says. I want to be called, you know, this, that, or the other. I'm going to call them this, that, or the other, just because. So we obviously have a very important- uh, I know he won't resign, that yeah, guy. George Santos will not it resign. It is so ridiculous. He's, I feel bad for, you know what has to happen. I think, he, I think, he's, um, I think, he, I think he's turned on by humiliation. Well, no, the thing is, is the people of his district are going to have to demand it yeah. before it'll be a thing. Like he's not going to do it based on his coworkers, you know? But yeah. Yeah. All right. So obviously we want to cover uh, an important story uh, this evening. We do. Uh, yeah. What are we covering? We're covering the fact that um, Katie Porter couldn't have five minutes to herself. No. To announce that she was running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, and why is that, ladies and gentlemen? Why is it that Katie Porter, who is the very best Democratic representative in the U.S. Congress today, is not allowed to have five minutes to announce that she is running, and by the way, in 24 hours, raised in small dollar donations over $1 million. So kudos to and Katie. And we also will be having a fundraiser for Katie Porter. We would like to have her on the show specifically for the means of raising capital. Yes, and we, we would campaign. like to host a fundraiser for Katie and, you know, do whatever we can to help because this is not good. Barbara Lee tells lawmakers today, just one day after Katie Porter says that she's running for the U.S. Senate, that she too is running for the U.S. Senate. How nice. Let's just steal Katie's thunder right away. I don't know who advises these representatives. Oh, to well, make you know think. who's advising them. Who's advising her? The same establishment people sitting in the same establishment people who told her you should support Kamala Harris over Bernie Sanders in California. So in other words, it's it's Clinton based. Then that's Clinton based. Maybe. Well, whenever I hear Kamala, I just think Team Clinton. Rah, rah. It would seem to me that it's pretty obvious who the Democratic establishment wants in the U.S. Senate in 2024. And that, of course, is Adam Schiff. That is, of course, assuming that Dianne Feinstein somehow chooses not to run again. She's going to be 91 years old. And as far as everyone knows, she has already filed to to run for re-election again, which means that she'd be 97 years old if somehow she survived. it's, It's so negligent on the part of the people around her and the other and her coworkers and colleagues and all of that. It is so unbelievably negligent. And why do you think they don't say anything? Well, of course they want that. They want the vote and the warm body in the seat, because if they had somebody in there that they weren't manipulable and controllable, then that's one less vote for them. And Katie Porter isn't going to get in line for them. No, she's not going to get in line. That's why she announced even though she knows that Feinstein is intending to run. Always remember the first person who gets in the race, because once a real Titan gets in the race, like, like Katie Porter, that's when it, it, that's when the waters are safe for others like Barbara Lee, for p- potentially Adam Schiff, maybe even Ro Because they were too to cowardly to do it before? Or was, what? So we all have to ask ourselves, was Barbara Lee intending to run for the Senate if no one else had gotten in with Feinstein's intention to run for re-election again? I think Barbara Lee is the kind of person that wouldn't have necessarily stepped in unless she knew Feinstein was stepping down and that the only reason she did is the establishment needed her to go in because Katie Porter went in. 
We are not here to be ageist, but remember, in less than six months, Barbara Lee will be 77, and she's running for the U.S. Senate for the first time in her career. So that's a six-year term. So she'll be 83, then she'll run again, and then she'll be 89. Uh, Again, we're at a point where, when does, especially in the Democrat, remember, (laughs) the people in the Freedom Caucus who led the rules changes and the concessions for Kevin McCarthy, do you know how old those people are that were doing that? They were in their 30s. They're in the 30s. Again, I'm still stuck on the fact that I'm like thinking highly of Matt Gates. Like, are you kidding me? That's how do you allow Matt Gates to get good headlines? This is <laughs> that scumbag. Well, look, they at least got something for their vote. They got something for their vote. It wasn't for free. And I just feel like the Democrats should take copious notes on how that's done. Like, it's bizarre to me that I'm sitting in I'm sitting in a universe. This is this is crazy. This is crazy. Wherein the Republicans are fighting to reduce the military budget and the progressive caucus is rescinding a very nicely worded letter asking for diplomatic relations with Ukraine. So that's the progressive caucus doing that. And the Republicans are getting a cut in the military budget. What the hell kind of bizarro world are we living in? And 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 then we get crap for saying nice things about Republicans and crapping on Democrats. Give me something good to talk about. Here's all you need to know regarding Barbara Lee. She did it in a closed, I always love how it's a closed meeting uh, with the Congressional Black Caucus, even though the intent is always to let it leak so you know what's going on. Uh, Then an additional question was presented to her via Politico, asked what her intentions were. She says she will officially announce when appropriate, but the most important Thing to know about the political article for la- for the ladies and gentlemen watching, Lee declined to say whether she'd run against the 89-year-old Feinstein if the California senator chose to run again rather than retire. Well, wait a minute. If she says she doesn't know if she'd run against her and she hasn't decided, so then how does she announce she's running for Senate if she doesn't know whether or not she's going to run? The only reason you would do that is to steal the thunder of Katie Porter. Because if you were really committed to running, you'd be committed to running whether the person was staying or going. And that's what's weird. What if, what if Representative Lee has no intention of getting into the race for another six months? What would be the purpose of saying anything right now? What makes you think that that's going to help you with fundraising once you get in? The deterrent here is to deter specifically the older black vote in California from even thinking about going over to Katie Porter, because they know that if the older black vote goes over to Katie Porter, the older black vote isn't going over to Adam Schiff if he chooses to get into the race, because they are trying to make sure that it stays in the hands of a complete corporate shill. That is the goal. So the danger of Katie Porter and I don't blame Katie for going forward. I think her decision to run is absolutely spot on. There is no question that she's making the right call. And the reason she's making the right call is simply this. She barely hung on to her congressional seat in Orange County because they redistricted it to make it even more red than it was before. And the Democratic Party left her high and dry against the GOP, which put $8 million behind a no-name candidate to try to knock her off. So guys, it's really important, anybody who can, help Katie Porter, because she's going to do this without corporate money. And quite honestly, I don't think we've seen a race that big be done without corporate money. If anybody can do it, it's her, because she has name recognition. I mean, Bernie presidentially, sure. yes. But I'm talking a statewide, a statewide race without corporate money Guys, that's going to be really hard. And she has a real advantage because she's doing it in a state that has a jungle primary system. 
in a state that is a supermajority blue, she is almost assuredly, or as as often the case in the state of California, the top two are going to be Democrat. Once in a great while, it is a, you know, you'll have a GOP candidate, but of course it will always end up going blue. Now the question becomes, is Katie Porter going to be one of the top two? In my opinion, yes, she's good enough to be one of the top two. Jason Rodriguez asked Jennifer if you tried Moonrocks. Yes. I'm a fan. Very much so. It's quite good. Hmm. Um, yeah, I still have a little bit left. Actually, my husband has a patient who actually has crafted some. So I have. Ha- <laughs> That's the kind of stuff I'm looking at in the chat. But anyway. So anyway, <laughs> I, I do think that the decision from Porter is very sound. And I think what the Democratic Party is going to do is you're all going to see over the next several months going to be beyond despicable what they're going to do to try to knock her off. Remember, They do not give a rat's ass if DeSantis ends up as the next president. The goal of the party is to stop non-corporate representation from taking over. That's the goal because non-corporate representation leads to an uprising of youth, non-corporate, populist-minded individuals who want to deal with the pipeline issues, who want to deal with the fact we don't have a clean energy grid, labor, high-speed rail, universal health care. Katie Porter is the shit. She really is. And as a lot of people are are, are trying to point out, Katie Porter is very difficult to work for. Yeah. Okay. It would be one thing if Katie Porter was a lousy representative who wasn't working her ass off day in and day out to try to help people. That's a perfectionist. And you know what? Perfectionists can be very difficult. And again, I don't, I don't like condone people being not cool to their staff. The truth is, Bernie's supposed to be cranky and curmudgeonly. So the thing is, is that these are not people that I'm voting on to be my friend and go on vacations with me and hang out. So I don't need them to be, you know, all nice and and, and how we exactly would want someone to be. That would be nice. It would be cool. But really, I want someone to go in there and just do their job and hold people accountable, speak truth to power, call out the corporate special interests and really keep people in line. And if she's doing that, then that's what matters. And I've always maintained Katie Porter. What happens as far as being friends or her personal life? That's no. that's not my concern. Katie Porter, if you really, if you pay attention to her, her story arc, if you will, as a representative, she needs to be in the upper chamber. She needs to be a U.S. senator because that's how she fights. She doesn't fight like a congressional representative. She fights like a U.S. senator. So why not put her there? I'd love to see her go against Rick Scott. Oh, I was thinking Joe Manchin. Or Joe Manchin. Well, yeah, but even still, if you had... Katie Porter on the Senate floor with Rick Scott basically calling him a murderer to his face. I mean, because I can imagine what she thinks of him. Do you really think Barbara Lee would ever take on Rick Scott the way that Katie Porter would? No, no. But but Barbara Lee's going to like kind of toe the line. Of course. And that's the whole point. And her one radical move that she keeps harping on, which, by the way, I did appreciate it at the time because she was the only representative that said no to the war in Iraq. And I do appreciate that. That was that was. That was cool. But what have you done for us lately? Like, it's kind of like that. It's sort of like that Don Shula thing. You can't live off of the old reputation forever. You the voters provide. that we encountered, especially in the suburbs that supported Wasserman Schultz, would constantly talk about, oh, I remember when she was pushing her kids in their stroller. Yeah, in the early 90s. And they want to talk about what she did 20, 30 years ago. No, what are you doing now? And the amazing thing about Wasserman Schultz is that she really has coasted off of her reputation as a state representative, not a federal representative, because as a federal representative of two decades, she is a complete disaster. 
And so for whatever reason, they still ha- they still hold on to the nostalgia of yesteryear. Well, you know what? Barbara Lee is not the same congressional representative that she was 20 years ago. You know what? I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. So why would we expect people to just stay the same? And by the way, we don't necessarily even want people to be the same because things change. Yeah, that's right. I think that's the and that's the kind of stuff that we that's need. What need. That's what we need. That's what we need. That's what we need. You need somebody uh, and- watching her. Anybody, if you've not seen Katie Porter go to town, unlike the big pharma guys or the banker guys or anybody that she's pulled out the whiteboard for, it's really it's it's a beautiful thing to watch. Yes. It's really a beautiful thing to watch. I do remember what she, she has out zero Bill fucks to she give. She really does. Katie Porter is very, zero very, very dangerous for the establishment. And Katie yeah. Porter, unlike Barbara Lee, endorsed Nina Turner for Congress. And don't think that doesn't go unnoticed. It goes I, noticed by us. Because that matters. You know, the people who really are concerned about the future of this country, but do what is necessary to continue to fight on the front lines of those who are going to make a difference. And for those who say, oh, well, the Democratic Party sucks anyway. Yeah, it does. But you know what doesn't change? I'll tell you what doesn't change. Katie Porter is not going to stop using her whiteboard to expose the real rot of this country, which is corporate special interests controlling our government. That is what she fights for. She doesn't fight to be overwoke or to look cool and and just dump on Republicans. She dumps on both equally. She calls out corruption. That's, that's what you want. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's what we need. And hopefully, you know, God willing, Katie's going to have an excellent chance to become the next U.S. Senator of California. Bill Maher is a cuck. I remember when he wasn't. I remember when he used to be good. But I remember when Rachel Maddow was decent. You people. It's not It's not funny. You come on our show and you think that you can tell me what to do. The Democrats and Republicans, they're terrible people. No, see, you go into Trump. But you know what? The mo- I did love Religious. If and you was. guys haven't seen yeah, Religious, it was great. A movie he made like a decade ago. Yeah, I know. But it was a great you movie. You can't, can't coast off of a decade. Well, Bill and Mar- here's the thing. I don't agree with him politically. But his take on religion is always spot on. For me, like for me, like in that regard, he's always on. Ben is absolutely correct. Rarely hear anything about Barbara Lee. That exactly. Where and are now, you, Ben? And now all of the Where sudden, are you, Ben? Now all of the sudden, uh, his wife is sick. So oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it goes without saying that they're going to employ every dirty tactic known to man in order to stop Katie Katie Porter. Porter. So guys, give her love. But the thing that's going to be interesting is that a lot of the suburban liberal women really like Katie Porter. She's like the exception to the rule. I wonder how you know whose mom would feel about her. Oh, that would be interesting. I am. You know what I'm saying? Adam Schiff would be the choice, though, I'm sure. You think? Meh. All right. We're not going to mention names. We'll just listen to what MS, whatever MSNBC says. But she, MSNBC she definitely, does. Katie Porter, like if you were just looking at her on paper and you really were sort of like not really in touch with what goes on in Capitol Hill and you were just sort of looking at her, she would be the stereotypical choice for that demographic. Yes. Okay. But if you actually know what she's about, then maybe you wouldn't go that way because she does. She's they consider her progressive as opposed to, you know, somebody say like an Amy Klobuchar. (laughs) Don't make me watch this. Don't make me watch Booty Judge. I will not watch him. (laughs) So apparently, no, 
uh, we have one more thing that we have to mention and must mention. Because uh, Mr. Buttigieg, Mayo Pete, Secretary of Transportation Pete, Pete. I think I'm running for president again and has a shot in hell of winning. Mayo Pete. Pete. (laughs) Decided to go on CNN today and was asked regarding the fact that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this country who are displaced over the holidays. And will they actually get a refund for their travel expenses? Are there still bags missing? Like this was a colossal disaster. Oh, yes. He's failing by rail and by air. What's Well, how is he doing by sea? This I don't know enough about. How screwed up has he made the cruising industry? Well, let's see exactly what Mr. Buttigieg had to say today, because this will be oh, very, no. very interesting. Oh, don't make me watch Petey. Well, okay. well, Mr. Robot Man has a lot to say, and so we are now going to hear what Mr. Robot Man <laughs> has to say. That should be his new nickname, quite frankly. Well, he's Manchurian Pete. Oh, here we go. Okay. What's he doing? He's cleaning the trash cans. Oh, boy. Meeting a new young homeowner for the first time is a unique challenge. So you think you can help? I can try. Hey, what you doing? Ah, just cleaning my trash cans. Wow. It's important to build trust. See, you put your address and phone number on here. Well, you can never be too safe. With trash? Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but we can protect your home and auto when you bundle with us. Don't look at the hedges there. No one's looking at the hedges. After Southwest's meltdown over the holiday with their system, you had said that the airline, in your words, were that they, quote, needed to find a way to really rebuild trust and confidence. When this happens, when something like this happens and it's an FAA system, does the FAA need to do the same? Well, certainly when uh, there's an issue in the FAA that needs to get looked at, uh, we're going to own it, uh, same as we ask airlines to own their companies and their operations. But the bottom line for us is always going to be safety. Uh, It is an extraordinary thing that millions of passengers fly through the air every year, and it is the safest way to travel in the United States. We work very hard to keep it that way, including being extremely conservative anytime there's any question or any irregularity about that. Uh, It's an extraordinary record in terms of safety, but we've also got to make sure there are efficient operations. Uh, Air passengers have been through a lot, especially in the course of the last year with the disruptions that we've seen. We've been able to uh, make some major gains in terms of accountability for airlines uh, when it comes to their customer service. We equally have to make sure that FAA has the systems, the staffing, uh, and the operations that it needs to serve air passengers well. The, one of the top Democrat in, in the House Transportation Committee this morning says that what this does is it begs the question about the current state of technology, the tech, technology infrastructure of the FAA. Is the system out of date Well, the system is continuously being upgraded and improved, but I think that is one of the key questions that that we have to look at based on what we saw overnight. Uh, I I did speak to to the chair and to members of Congress on on both sides and and, uh, reached out to members in both chambers this morning just with uh, operational updates after I briefed the president. And uh, I welcome the attention from Congress, especially because we're coming up on the period when the FAA reauthorization, the five-year bill that provides funding and and direction from the FAA is coming before Congress. It is the right time for us to be taking up those questions. Most broad, more broadly, if this if if this one issue, and I'm just going to call it a computer glitch, and I know there's going to be a more technical term for what happened, if this one issue can essentially paralyze the entire U.S. domestic flight system, even for an hour and a half, it does beg the question for I know people are asking is how vulnerable is the system, and should people be worried? 
Well, what people need to know is that FAA will always act to make sure that passengers are safe. And part of what you saw this morning was uh, a, an act of caution to be sure until it was 100% airtight that the system was working properly, even just for delivering messages, uh, that, that we had that ground stop. Uh, but I do think that broader question is a real one. Uh, what are the redundancies? What are the backups? What are the means to make sure uh, that a disruption like this does not happen? Uh, because you, you uh, what you saw this morning was uh, something we haven't seen in a very long time. And we need to design in, in an, a field that's changing a lot and is going to be changing a lot more in the years to come. But we need to design a system that does not have those kind of vulnerabilities. He is such a robot. He, he sounds like a robot. so difficult to listen to. <clears throat> and, it's so cringy. And, and what, what amazes me, probably more than anything else, is how many people want this guy to be president. Maybe it's a very small but loud contingent of people, as you often like to say, like with the K-Hive. Um, I don't think it's real. It's just manufactured. I think it's bots. Like, I, I really do. I think a lot of it is just, it's not real. When you talk about K-Hive, I think it's like a handful of people in a room of bots. So, Buttigieg, uh, what I found hysterical was that he said that he briefed the president. To, <laughs> like, could you just imagine... Uh, Pete Buttigieg briefing Joe Biden and how that conversation would go. I'd rather you watch know people complain Pete about Charlie. people would complain about the the you know stupidity of the Trump administration and oh totally tell me what's on the tell me what's on the news today. Come on, man, tell me what's going on, oh, Mr. President. The people are screwed. And he said, I, I I don't have the quote in front of me, but apparently what Pete said to the effect of we are not a bank or we're not giving people refunds. Well, that's up there with when we were having a situation with the baby formula and he's like, look, we're a capitalist country. Yeah. Gee, thanks. Thanks for that, Pete. You're so insightful. You're not a bank. Really? You're so insightful, Pete. Yeah. This no, is who said, they're going to put up for president. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous. I, I do find it extremely pathetic. Because it is. And listening to him talk, uh, what is the point of that? Who cares? Being an attack dog for against Republicans on Fox News, I could do that. I can pick off shit that the Republicans are saying. Well, he's not saying it in a complimentary fashion. No, I fashion. know. I'm just sound like I'm so angry. Because, no, because it's just <laughs> because people eat that stuff up. It's like people who ate up. Hakeem Jeffries' speech the other day. Oh, it was so wonderful. Let's it wasn't, forget. by the way. By the way. It wasn't. It wasn't even a speech. It, it was, was a, a list. It was a platitude sandwich of the highest order. It, was, was it wasn't there. even that. It wasn't even that. It was literally a platitude list. They didn't even bother to mix it up. They could have at least made a salad out of it. It was just literally a, it was like a stacked platitude sandwich. It's a good thing I don't have any planned flights right now. Neither do you, I guess. Well, I, not until March. Yeah, hopefully they'll fix the problem by I March. I sure hope so. I have, I have a trip in March. Yeah, that trip could... Yes, yes, TM, that is a very generous way of putting it. That's very generous. I'm, 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 I, that would be like, yeah, I just find him a little lackluster. And let me tell you, based on the me. information I've been provided by somebody who is pretty close to this stuff... There is, if you think Pelosi is still not pulling the strings from behind the scenes, cool. you do not have any idea. how. Well, he's just who she picked after the fact to replace her. That's all Correct. it is. 
Correct. She picked him and they were all threatened with whatever they were threatened with. It could be a variety of things. It could be several different things. The American people are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. So sick and tired of your platitudes. Hey, got me elected twice. Ugh. You're right. Obama had fancy words. I Exactly. That's what I, I have. Yeah. Yeah. He is a Pelosi puppet, which is what we figured would happen. And fortunately, I guess, for, for those of us that use some reason, uh, he's not the speaker. So it doesn't really matter. Let's, let's, let's just settle down, okay? Let's settle down. Our At least the Republicans got concessions. Man. Like, I, how is that not eye-opening for so many people? What if know. our congressional, what if the Democratic Progressive Caucus, that's over 100 people. Let's okay, see. what if they actually took a stand on something? Well, let's bring the conversation full circle. Let's see who of the squad, let's say, is going to endorse Katie Porter for Senate. I wonder about that. Who do you think? Do you have any idea? Do you think any of them or nobody? Maybe nobody. Yeah, they won't stand up to Barbara Lee or Adam Schiff. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, the shame. That's um, why people are getting restless and tired and your stock goes down day by day wow. by day. I unequivocally support Katie Porter and am going to be happy to have a fundraiser and hopefully we can get her on to chat. And I've always been a fan. So, so we do not have a distinct plan as of now for next week, but it is coming together as is often the case. I like to try to plan things at least a few weeks in advance. Monday is Martin Luther King day. We will most likely have an afternoon show uh, we are trying to get on a well-known Twitch and TikTok streamer. Uh, won't say who, uh, but it will be a surprise. Uh, I do. I, I'm not only imagining it, I'm working toward it. Mm. I'm creating it. You envision it, it will happen. Yes, I am a pothead fighting for freedom. I agree. Well. who? Which it. person are we talking about? Uh, Ariana. Oh, okay. So just need confirmation on that. Ariana. Uh, we are going to we get. We just had fit. No, we didn't. We're, this is another person. Oh, different Ariana. Okay. We are going to have on a representative from Fair Vote who is going to come on and talk about ranked choice voting. I think what I'd like to do with that one is have on somebody from Fair Vote and somebody from the forward party uh, and talk about and have a conversation uh, related to that particular fight. So I think that that will be a fun show that I think you guys will enjoy. Uh, Joanna, you're right. What is the point of the Progressive Caucus if they're not going to stand up and support her? Who is to say that they didn't already get a warning from Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy oh, Pelosi sure. and the like to say, don't you even dare think about supporting Katie Porter. And by the way, we're going to throw a blocker candidate in there and Barbara Lee because Adam Schiff is getting that seat. Well, and I would also say, I bet you Barbara Lee's probably in the Progressive Caucus. She is. Right. And in the Black and the Congressional Black Right. Caucus. It's like that. Those don't mean it. The, the Progressive Caucus means nothing means not, they, they, I don't even understand the point of having a caucus. They don't do anything as a block. The whole point of joining together as a block is to do things like what Gates's little group just did. That's the whole point of being a block is to use your block for, like why to get that, things done. I don't understand how anyone thinks it's acceptable that they do it and, and the, the squad doesn't. I, mean, I, I don't understand. They, I would never have just said, yeah, I'm just going to support Hakeem Jeffries just because I was told to, and, and I'm not going to get anything for it. And the no. idea that you're all out there making no. fun of the GOP because they're doing it, at least they're doing something. 
least they're fighting for something. And uh, I gotta tell you, not everything that they fought for was bad. bad. I actually agree with a handful I of what like, they were doing. First of all, everything they asked for are things to be brought to the floor for a vote, correct? Yeah, and that's on top of the $75 billion cut okay. in the military budget. So, so as far as I'm concerned, everything should be brought to the floor for a vote. The yeah. fact that they have to fight to get things to the floor just for a vote that's what we really should be wondering about, people. That's the problem. Yeah. Why doesn't everything get brought to the floor for a vote that can? The only thing that I could think of and the only Jesus. thing that really makes sense at this point is that they really know in the Democratic hierarchy just how vulnerable their position is to continuing to basically stonewall this inevitability, if you will, this change that must happen. They don't want to allow it to happen, but none of them are really willing to risk the ire of the democratic hierarchy, the fundraising machine that can be brought against them, as well as corporate media basically lashing out at them at all times. And remember, for a lot of them, this is a career, even the people that are supposed to be fighting on our behalf. It's so lucrative, you have no yeah. idea how good it is to be a congressional representative. As I tell people, the smallest little minute detail that you need to know about a federally elected representative is they have not one, not two, not three, but eight assistants. They eight. get eight. They get a staff of eight. Every congressional representative. Four here, and local, four there. and four on the Hill. Imagine that. You get a staff of eight. Ain't that you nice? Also get, you also get, I want to say- Travel stipend. Well, that, but it's like, like something one. like a $40,000 um, office- like, like, I guess you would call it a stipend mm -hmm. to do office furnishings and stuff like that. Like it's, they get a lot of money. They get a lot of money. They get a lot of resources and a lot of money. And the fact that they just want to just sit there. I, I mean, it's not that I don't see what they're getting from it, but it's just, it's very unfortunate to me that I don't hear more on these platforms. Like I can't imagine being in there and then just going with that and voting for him and not putting out information to tell all of you people, uh, I was threatened with this, 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 and this, and I'm still not going to vote for him because this, 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 and this. Yeah. That's what, like, I don't, why are we not hearing about that? Why doesn't anybody, why did we have more democracy in fifth grade? I remember in fifth grade, we would do things where like we would have clubs and we would have votes and like a handful of people would run and we would have voting and whatever. We had more options in democracy in my fifth grade class than we can have in the Democratic Party in Congress. The fact that everybody just uniformly gets behind one person so matter of factly and that it's even heresy to discuss the idea of somebody else within that same party. What kind of authoritarian shit is this? And by the way, that you would even like screw over and threaten representatives, because I know that's what they do. They threaten them. Either your district won't be getting th these resources, you won't get this committee assignment, and we're going to primary your How ass. How is it that Matt Gates can look straight in the camera and say, Mike Rogers of Alabama's third district threatened to kick me off of committee assignments? And his response was, what the hell's the point of being on a committee when you can't even get anything done here anyway? Right. Like, how do you allow Matt Gates to get that airspace? But they, but, but, and this is what I don't understand. And again, I don't know because I'm not there. I don't know because I'm not there. But here's the thing: whatever it is that they're threatening you with, why, why is nobody saying that? Why isn't anybody leaking it? It doesn't even have to be you. Well, yeah. Not only, I just the whole thing is very. And Alex started out that way. 
when she was going through her first year orientation, she started out with that sort of intention of giving information. I remember she put out information that, oh my God, the entire orientation is run by lobbyists. Yeah, of course it is. And so she was putting this out as if she was somehow going to be you know, like a mole on the inside. And then that just went to shit. She got rid of her original team. She called Nancy Pelosi mama bear. She's got the life now. And look, that doesn't mean that she's a bad person, but people succumb to the pressure and they love the life. The life is intoxicating. You know what though? Like imagine people imagine this. Imagine if you had a representative that really a hundred percent did not give a shit about being reelected and just spent two years basically using a federal platform to do everything to bring attention to all the things that are corrupt, filthy problems, travel around, help with labor, and just use that platform for all it's worth and not give a shit about being reelected. Imagine what that would look like. That'd be lovely. Well, they have these federal platforms and they don't use them and they all just vote for this guy. Like somehow, why is that a given? Because mama bear told you to? Are you fucking kidding me? This is ridiculous. I'm telling you, we had better democracy in elementary school. This is absurd. I would love to. And what a fuck you to the people of the district. So let's say that I'm a representative and I'm up there and I'm saying, I'm not going to go along with this. I don't think that's the best person. I'm going to support this person instead. And then I get my district, my constituents, they get threatened without help and resources because I'm actually wanting to do something democratic. And so then the party punishes someone. So the, the democratic party is essentially punishing representatives who are representatives of our population for speaking up for democracy. And this is also what will ultimately happen and no one ever wants to talk about, but the reason why even representatives that we like, you know, it's no point in naming anybody, but you know, when you're on the Hill and you vote in favor of the terrible omnibus bill, you get rewarded for it, quote unquote, by getting X amount of money to now bring back to your district to basically bribe your district. Right. Because that's what it well, is. And that's how they keep their represent. That's how people like Nancy Pelosi keep everybody in line. Correct. Because they hold the dollars over their head. And it isn't really a question of you saying, <clears throat> well, I'm not going to vote for this because I don't believe in it because I think that what you're doing is wrong and your district is going to get money. No, you will actually be punished. And then what the message that will go out is well, initially your district was going to get $12 million and now it's going to get $2 million. That's how it works. But you see, I think people need to know that because what that is, is that is complete partisan bullshit. That's political parties, which by the way are private clubs, but it's private clubs screwing around with what constituents need to use it as leverage in their games. Yeah. That's what's infuriating. So it isn't so much that like, let's say, let's say I have all the best intentions and I go to Congress and I'm like there and I'm going to say, you know what, screw you. I'm not voting for Hakeem Jeffries. And so then all my constituents lose out on funding and you have to have people that are willing to say, fine, but so be it. Let's see that and expose that for the filth that it is and let your constituents know that because what people want is somebody to fight for them. Damn right. That's what they want. They want somebody to fight for them and be transparent. They don't expect you to get everything done. They just are so sick of being lied to and controlled and manipulated. It's just, it's outrageous. It's about time somebody tested that theory. Hit the like button, subscribe, 
We appreciate each and every one of you. The chat has been very lively tonight. You guys have been awesome. Carla Harrington, can't thank you enough for your amazingly generous contribution. Nevin Gusak, shout out to you, our new $10 Patreon, uh, a patron of our Patreon. You know what? Whatever. Patreon. I think it should be Patreons. Why not? Why not? It's through Patreon. Why should they not be Patreons? Thank you, TM. And uh, thank you guys for the wonderful compliments. Oh, it's so nice. I, you know, it's all good. You're really great. I don't think we had any trolls tonight. It was interesting. No, that was nice. It was refreshing. Let's get out of here before (laughs) they do show up. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.